Thanks for listening to our podcast, recorded live at Gateway Church Ashford. You can find out more about us on our website, gatewaychurchashford.co.uk. Great to be here with you this morning. Look around, there's a lot of faces I don't know. And that's always good, isn't it? That's always good. Where, there's, uh, where people are being added. Uh, we had a great evening last night, enjoying a, a great meal. And uh, watching Japan beat the South Africans. <laughs> Did any of you see that? Yeah. I think they must have recruited every sumo wrestler. <laughs> I, want, I want to speak to you this morning about increasing your faith. I've um, been living with this probably for quite a long time. Um, but uh, the disciples often went to Jesus and said, increase our faith. Um, and he, he, he did things with them and to them that uh, were not pleasant. Uh, I think sometimes we, uh, when we think of discipleship, we think it's all going to be very easy. But actually, when we read the Gospels, we realise that the way Jesus increased their faith was often putting them through some very difficult situations. And I guess when I think of stress, and I get stressed out from time to time, my wife, will, um, Sue, will... Um, um, bear that one up but I think I was thinking of stress this morning and I think for me I get stressed when things don't work out the way that I've planned Uh, particularly when it comes to things like cars and uh, um, computers and I don't have a mobile phone Um, I think I'm the only person in the world that doesn't have one Um, anybody else not you haven't got one other love well good very good we can get together and form a little society afterwards. Um, but, um, but, you know, so when everything's going fine, I don't particularly get stressed. Um, it's when things don't go as I've planned them to. And I, I think when I read through the Gospels, I think that's, that seems to be the case for the disciples as well. So they're always asking Jesus, we need, we need to move to another level of faith. Anybody uh, with me on that one? Yes. We do, don't we? I mean, the challenges today are huge, but the potential is huge as well. What what is happening uh, around the world, which means that those that we would like to go to and share the gospel with, and we we can't because there are doors are locked. Now they're coming to us. So the opportunity. So I'm thrilled with what you're proposing to do with Syrian uh, refugees. So I want to talk about increasing increasing our faith. Um, I guess that John Mark was probably in his mid-teens when Jesus uh, used to use his mother's home. Um, she would host them, the disciples, and Jesus would come to, uh, to Mary's house. They would meet there. And I guess for him, it must have been a, an amazing experience to be eavesdropping on what Jesus was saying, the stories that were being told and... And um, we know that uh, he was the guy that uh, put together um, a, a lot of accounts uh, which we, we have in his gospel. Uh, some people would say it was actually the original source that where the other gospel writers took his... Uh, and it's a, very, it's a very snappy, isn't it? You can read it through. It doesn't take you long. And it's pretty gets to the point. And uh, a lot of his gospel is about faith. 
And he, he, he tells us how that, um, you know, Jesus, it seemed, his priorities seem to be, at least according to Mark and Luke a bit as well, that Jesus wants them to become men of faith, men and women of faith, probably before anything else, long before the cross. And uh, holiness is mentioned too much. He wants them to be men and women of faith. And I can just imagine that um, when Mark is uh, realising that the accounts of Jesus and uh, what he did need to be written down because those first eyewitnesses now, many of them were martyred. Peter himself, who is his buddy, uh, who most of the material came from for John Mark, he, Peter himself knows. He's, he's, uh, he's, he knows that his life is coming towards a close. And I can just imagine John Mark squeezing Peter because he wants to give an authentic account of what actually took place all those years ago, 30 years probably before. And I don't know if you've ever squeezed anybody. You know, sometimes, you know, you want to know what actually took place. Uh, I've got a friend in Mexico, and uh, an amazing uh, fella who was, um, he was a playboy. Uh, he was a very, very wealthy guy. He was a very, very, he came third in the amateur championship at golf in Mexico. And so obviously that was another attraction for me, um, being a golfer. But um, he, he got high on, 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 um, on drugs, couldn't get off them. And uh, crying out in his room one night, um, Jesus just appeared and uh, said to him, I've got a job for you to do. And uh, wonderfully saved, uh, sold all, everything he had. Uh, went to the golf club and uh, led 19 of his friends to the Lord that night and then started visiting prisons. And, but he, he often, when, I, when I've been with him, I haven't been with him, I'd squeeze him and I'd say, tell me what it was like. Now, come on, tell me again. Just that story about Jesus just came in glorious light and said to him, I have a job for you to do. So I, I would squeeze him and I'd love to tell that story. And so I can just imagine that... Um, John is doing the same with Peter. Come on, Peter, you were in that wretched boat. You were in that storm. Now, really, what was it like? Come on. So what I've done, I've sort of, I want you to use your imagination this morning, because I haven't got a Bible with me. I've sort of rewritten it. (laughs) You can check me out. So I've rewritten this conversation. Um, Just imagine, John Mark is there, Peter. Come on, what really happened? Come on, I, I, I need this. I need to write this down. And, uh, and so Peter, well, John lad, that's a day I'll never forget. The master had been teaching for days. The crowds were some of the biggest. They just wouldn't go home. He was clapped. He gave everything. He was spent. I don't think I ever saw him so tired. We needed to escape for a while, so he told us to get in the boat and cross the lake. We headed for a remote place. Mainly Gentile pig farmers lived and worked there. It was a calm evening, and he fell asleep almost before we set sail. We often fished in these waters, so when he got a bit choppy, we weren't concerned. But all of a sudden, it seemed as if all hell was let loose on us. I've never experienced anything like it. The wind, the waves, this was not usual. It was scary. We really believed we were going down. The master was sound asleep. 
Eventually, we woke him, took some doing as well. He didn't look too happy, and then he did something that will be etched in my memory for as long as I live. He addressed the wind and the waves, and he rebuked them, just like he'd rebuked demons. It was uncanny. It all went still and quiet. We were gobsmacked. Then he addressed us. Where's your faith, he said. Faith didn't seem to figure too large for us. We were petrified. We just looked at one another. We knew the master was special and different from the other rabbis, but this was something again. No one said much for the rest of the crossing. To be, to be honest, we were all relieved to be on solid ground. But then something else happened. I think it was Matthew who saw him first. Matthew always had better long-range eyesight than the rest of us. It was a man, although hardly recognisable as such, running towards us, screaming out loud. He was naked and covered in blood. Somehow he knew the master's name. Here we go again, I thought. This man was like no one I'd ever seen. The poor wretch was totally off his head, chains dangling from his arms and legs. And then the master addressed him, or at least what was in him. Come out, you evil spirit, the master said. I don't mind admitting we were all again terrified. I don't know what was worse, the storm or this frightening demonised man. Anyway, the master did it again. The demons took off and killed off a herd of pigs. Didn't bless the pig farmers too much. Then the master cleaned the guy up. Now just as sane as the rest of us. We got him some clothes and the master talked to him about the kingdom of God. He wanted to come with us. But the master had a job for him to do. Go tell your family and your friends what I've done for you, he said. We heard later he went down a real a bomb, a real evangelist. God, the master knew how to get them. Some experience that was. But strangely, it did something for us, even though at one time we thought we were getting ready to meet our maker. Soon, of course, we would have realised we'd been with him for three years. Shortly after that, he sent us out. Now you do it, he said. He gave us his authority. It was great, we preached. We healed the sick. We even cast out some demons. And we were just fishermen. But the master said, we were ready. And Lord, we're ready. We're ready as well. We're ready to do more for you than we've done before, individually, as churches. And uh, thank you for bringing us together this morning. Now, please help us uh, that our faith may increase, that we might do the more for you, Lord Jesus. Amen. I guess most um, opportunities, gospel opportunities, are missed for mainly one reason, lack of faith. That'd be true, wouldn't it? Often we find opportunities open up for us and somehow we just don't take those opportunities. And I came across something, I was reading uh, Stephen Neal's History of Christian Missions. It's worth reading, it's, it's a huge volume, it's about 500 pages, but if you're interested in mission, it's a must, to be honest. But he tells the story of how in 1266, Marco Polo, the great explorer, he had an audience with, uh, with Kublai Khan, 
uh, emperor of a, of, a, of, a, of a great empire. Um, I think the grandson of, of the famous Genghis Khan. And basically he gave, he gave Marco Polo a letter and he said, when you get back to Rome, give this to your leader in Rome. And basically it said this, send me a hundred intelligent, educated priests who can convince my people of the truth about Jesus and this kingdom is, is, is his. And Marco Polo delivered that letter when he got back to Rome. And 28 years later, another pope sent one priest. By that time, it was too late. Islam had got that kingdom. Missed opportunity, lack of faith. And as I said earlier, it seems when I read through the Gospels, Jesus' priority is that he wants us to be men and women of faith. That seems to come before all other things that we, 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 we as church leaders particularly like, like to have people, we like nice Christians in our church. Living nice lives. But it seems here, the priority here first of all is that Jesus wants men and women who have faith. And uh, when you read through Mark's Gospel and particularly Luke's as well, it seems to be, uh, it gives us an account of the process that he takes them through. And this boat trip was, was scary, wasn't it? Now, these were hardened sailors, but they thought they were going to lose uh, their lives. But one thing, is, one thing is true, that at the end of this boat trip, and then the experience with the Gadarene demoniac, and then the return trip, one thing is clear, they had more faith when they came back than they had when they took off on that boat trip. So the experience, although it was scary... Nevertheless, it had increased their faith. So much so that a chapter or so later, Jesus actually sends them out and says, go with my authority. It was a pre-Pentecost experience. He went, they went with the same authority as those disciples did after Pentecost. Um, they went with Jesus' authority. Um, and, and so I find this passage speaks to me uh, about uh, increasing increasing our faith. These disciples had moved through that experience, which was basically over a day. They moved from being followers of Jesus, who had faith. They'd given up a good fishing business. To give up a good job and follow Jesus, you need faith. But now they've gone from that to being not just followers of Jesus, but now those that were involved in apostolic ministry. They'd been out and they began to do the same works that Jesus did, which was a precursor to what was coming a little bit later. And that's what Jesus wants for us. It's not just for leaders, it's for everybody who's part of his church, that we do the works that Jesus did. But we need faith in order to do that. So I just want to share briefly three, three things this morning of, of how I think their faith was increased. Um, the first thing I see here is that they were learning that when Jesus said something, he meant it. And, uh, and also that he had the resources to make sure that it gets done. So if you read the text, what does he say to them? Let's go to the other side. What do you think he meant by that? <laughs> Let's go to the other side, exactly. That's what he meant. Let's go to the other side. And isn't that, isn't that true for us? That we're told to run the race, we're told to walk with Jesus, we're told to live this life. He doesn't tell us what's going to happen in the course of it. And sometimes during the course of it, we go through some pretty difficult experiences, don't we? Tragedies, 
bereavements, accidents, things that happen to us. But nevertheless, he says, we're going to make it to the end. We've got a, we've got a run, uh, race to run, so let's get on and do it. And these disciples had to learn that, that when he said, let's go to the other side, what he intended was that they were actually going to get to the other side. The fact that all hell was let loose on the way is neither here nor there. And they were having to um, learn that. And I think those are, those are lessons that we, we have to learn. It's called trust, isn't it? Um, those of you that know me know that my, my passion is uh, lecturing church history, which I've done for many, many years now. And often people say to me, wow, if only we had revival, as though revival is the panacea for all our spiritual ills. But the problem is this, the people who we write about later who were in revival, they didn't have a clue at the time what they were involved in. All they knew was they were being obedient to and following God. And the outcome of that was when, when it's written up, we call it, we call it revival. But, you know, one of the things you find as you read those stories, folks, there is a price to pay. And if we are going to make an impact for Jesus, whether it's in our local communities or whether it's going to be wider, there is a price to pay. Those disciples had to pay a price going through those experiences in order for their faith to be increased. One of the most radical movements of the modern church history era is undoubtedly the Salvation Army. Um, if, you, if you go back and get some of the original books, the modern ones, they don't tell the true story because the implications are shocking. But if you go back to the original, those, um, those that were with Booth that wrote the original accounts of what took place, um, they, 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 they went through some horrendous things in, 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 in order to be the people that they became. And William Booth was not the easiest character to live with. A man who can say to his kids, I'm first your general and then your father... Is, is pretty tough nut, and uh, it's not surprising that not all his kids walked, walked, walked with him. But his son, his son um, Bramwell Booth, was a, a much milder soul than he. It was, it was, it was, a, it was a, a real gentleman. And one day he was in his office on the first floor in London, and a young woman climbed up a drainpipe and actually came into his office, and she told this sordid story of how she'd been sold for two pounds into slavery, and she was a child prostitute, and she'd escaped and asked for his help. And um, Booth, Bramwell Booth and his wife were, were, were greatly moved by this and, and said to their fa- the father, William, we need to do something. And William said, no, this will sidetrack me, I've got to preach the gospel, but if you've got faith for this, then you, then you do something. And what he basically did with the aid of... Um, um, a friend of his, W.J. Stedman, who was the editor of the Pall Mall Gazette at the time, which was one of the big daily newspapers then, and a converted brothel keeper, they went out and they bought a young woman for two pounds. She was 12 years of age, and they actually purchased her for two pounds. They had a doctor certify she was a virgin when they bought her. They then took her to Paris, and they put her in a Salvation Army home in Paris, and, uh, and, and when she was later released, again, she was certified that she was still a virgin. She had not been sexually interfered with or anything like that. And then W.J. Stedman published, and I think this paper went into 19 editions that day, um, Babylon in Modern London. And it told this sordid story of how you could go out and purchase for two pounds a young woman, and put her into prostitution. Because at that time, the age for sexual relations was 12. 
and, and they've been moved to, to, to increase it to 16. But no one wanted to know, no one wanted to face the fact that in, in London at that time, it was pretty foul. Uh, the morals were at a, a very low level. And so letters were sent to the Archbishop of Canterbury, sent to the Queen Victoria, sent to Parliament, and eventually a bill was put through Parliament and the age of consent was raised to 16, which is where it is today. But the interesting thing was this. Bramwell Booth was prosecuted, but they never had any evidence against him. W.J. Stedman was put into prison for procuring a, a young child, and the brothel keeper, converted brothel keeper, was also in prison. Stedman died just as he came out of prison. There was a price to pay. George Bernard Shaw, to commemorate the, the work that the Salvation Army had done, uh, wrote a play called Pygmalion, which is about Eliza, which was the name of the young woman that they purchased. For. They changed the law of our nation. And they basically, they dealt with child prostitution. It was the church that did that. But there's always a price to pay. But we are here to change our nations. Make no bones about that. So when people talk to me about politics, you shouldn't be involved in politics of the church. And we're here to represent King Jesus. And we're here to be salt and light and to change our nation. But there's a price to pay, folks. And, and we need to understand that, that if we're going to be serious about the call that God has put on our lives as churches, then there will be, will be a price to pay. But when Jesus says something, we believe what he says, even though getting it done may be pretty tough. And we need to understand that. The second thing I, I see here is this, that nobody is beyond redemption. I don't know, what time are you supposed to finish? It, it doesn't matter. Okay, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> Nobody is beyond redemption. Now, I come from a reformed background, you know, so you're thinking of Calvinism and predestination. No, no, I'm not thinking about that at this moment in time. No one is, is beyond redemption. That's the way we've got to live. This guy, when Jesus asked him his name, he said, my name is Legion. If you look up Legion, in, in terms of the Roman... Uh, Roman Legion, apparently it's 6,000 foot soldiers and 120 horsemen. So this guy must be saying, <laughs> um, I'm just full of foul, demonic stuff. Probably the most demonised, troubled man that's ever lived, um, certainly in the scriptures. Um, 15 years ago, I went to speak at a conference. Did you come with me, Graham? Um, I, quite a number of guys came into a place called Monterey in Mexico. Oh, you were lucky. It was a wacky. It was one of these prophetic conferences. I didn't want to go and speak. But Terry Virgo said I had to go, so, <laughs> so I went. And I knew it, was, I knew it wasn't going to be... I knew there were a bunch of wacky people, about 3,000 of them. And I thought, this is, I don't need this. And, and uh, so about 12 of us, we were, we were booked into a hotel. I remember we paid $10 on the door and we were promised the sheets would be changed quite, twice a day. And we realised we were staying in a house of ill repute, so that wasn't a good start. And, um, and it was wacky. It was as wacky as they come. Some of this prophetic stuff drives you, drives you bananas. And at the end of the first day, at the end of the first meeting, um, we, 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 we guys just we went out for a drink. And uh, we were in this bar in, uh, in, uh, quite near the building. And there was an old guy sitting in the corner. And he came across and he said, um, are you the English guys that are at the conference? And uh, I, I said, yes, we are. He said, one of you is the speaker. 
I said, that's me. He said, you don't look the part. I said, well, they can't afford the real thing. So um, I, I said, well, who are you? He said, well, my name is Dow Robinson. I'm also one of the speakers. He said, but I, I, I couldn't cope with it tonight. I came out and got a drink. So come and join us. And um, this was his story. Um, Dow Robinson was an anthropologist or had been an anthropologist in his youth and Bible translator. And he'd gone to live with some native Indians um, outside in the mountains of Mexico City. There are still unexplored tribes there, by the way, even to this time. That's in Mexico. And um, his background was uh, Methodist. No, not Methodist, it was uh, Brethren. And he was a cessationist. Now, people ask me, what is a cessationist? Well, they're usually unhappy people, and they believe about half of the New Testament. But, you know, but, so that's, that's, that's the best I can do there. Um, but he, was, um, he discovered that this tribe didn't have an alphabet. So it's very difficult translating scriptures when you haven't got an alphabet. So first of all, he had to find an alphabet, then he had to find a, a written language for them. But there he was, sort of doing all this work, as a young man, in a, living in a tent. And uh, this woman came with a very, very sick daughter and said to him, you're the man of God, could you please heal my daughter? Well, because he's a cessationist, they so don't believe in that. They don't believe in healing. And then she said something else. She said, and if you heal my daughter, can you deal with the spirit that rules over this area because he'll just kill my son? Well, we don't want to go there this morning. We haven't got time and all that sort of stuff either. But, of course, for him, he's totally, he's totally flummoxed. And, and this is the thought that went through his head. What is the good of translating the scriptures if I can't actually deal with this sort of stuff? So where did he go? Where did he go? Benny Hinn wasn't around by, by the way. So where did he go? Where, where'd you go when you're faced with a dilemma like that? He's a cessationist. He's brethren. There's nothing wrong with being brethren. Um, but where'd you go? Where'd you go? Where would you go? Jesus. Yeah, oh, come on. Let's not be that spiritual. Let's just try and... Well, you go to the scriptures again, don't you? So Dale Robinson went back to the scriptures. And uh, it was there that he found faith for this sort of stuff. And uh, he did pray for the, for the sick. I don't know what he did about the spirit. But then, then, a little while later, he tells the story about this guy comes into his camp who is, um, he didn't have any chains, but he had lots of blood on him. He was absolutely naked and he was off his head. And he thought, oh, I don't believe this. I can't believe this. Uh, so he's got the gathering demoniac, or reincarnation of him anyway. Um, and, and, and what do I do? But in the scriptures, Jesus, Jesus dealt with it. He, he was very honest. He said, I didn't, it didn't take me an hour. It took me months. But he said, he said, praying, seeking God, being with this man. He said, eventually, he came into his right mind. And now he's an evangelist in those mountains. And you see, it's, it's, it's going back to the word. You see, we, we, we're evangelical, but I sometimes wonder, you know, what does that mean for us anymore? Does it mean that when Jesus says something, we actually, we actually um, believe it? And, and it's, so, it's so very, very important. Um, I mentioned that I'm probably reformed by background, probably a three-and-a-half-point Calvinist, sort of getting reduced as I, as I get older, to be honest. Um, but, you know, people often have a go back at Calvin. Let me tell you about John Calvin. When John Calvin was in Geneva, he trained in his time 1,850 church planters for France alone. 
And 20% of France became Christian during that time. They were called the Huguenots, and you read about them, and they were people who moved in sort of power. So, so beware of any theology that limits the power of God. Uh, I wrote something recently, I think some of you have my travelogues, and said, if it comes to it, I'm going to go to the scriptures every, every time, uh, even if some of the theology uh, that, that is around these days is denying something of what the scriptures said. So no one is, is beyond, beyond redemption. And then, and thirdly, what I read here as well is that they had, they had faith to be sent out because you find just after this, Jesus sends them out. He gives them his authority. I thought about that. It's because at Pentecost the Spirit comes upon them, but because we've got Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, here's the, it's the Trinity, isn't it? It's working together. He sends them out with his authority. In other words, they go and they do exactly what he did, and they come back and they say, wow. Even the demons are subject to us. And, and God wants us to be sent out. He wants us to be, to be an ap- always an apostolic people, always on the move, always on the go, even if it's just to our next-door neighbour or to the supermarket or wherever it is. I met Finney. Uh, he's an Indian gentleman, um, very quiet. He was doing a PhD on the Holy Spirit at Durham University. Quiet, shy, rarely said very much until you got him into a prayer meeting and then you started to pray for revival and boy, he was, he was, he was transformed. I mean, he just took off. And um, Steve, Steve and Oliver and I were doing a conference at a place called Al, Al Elaine uh, near Dubai uh, for a number of young leaders. And I thought, let's invite Finney. I hadn't seen him for about nine years. I thought, we'll invite him over. And uh, so I got in touch with one of my friends who was in touch with him, and he said, it's unlikely you'll get him. But we did. He came over, and I thought, well, well, we'll bless him. We'll do him really good. He needs to be with people like us who know what it's really all about. And um, so he comes. He's very quiet. And, and, and Steve says, why don't we ask some of the guys just to share a bit about themselves? So we said to Finney, could you just share a bit, bit about your situation? He said, yes, I've, I've, got some, I've got my computer with me so I can show you some photos. And he, he showed us, the, he showed us um, this picture of his annual Bible, um, uh, Bible week where there were um, uh, 43,000 people in attendance. And then he told us that he's got 1,600 churches and 430,000 people. And we said, oh, um, okay, you really do need to be with us, don't you? (laughs) And um, we said, well, tell us. And then we've got a college of 500 students. He said, you can come, you can do a diploma in theology, you can do a degree if you want, a master's, you can do a doctorate. But whatever you do, at the end of it, this is what we tell you. Go back to your village, find someone who's sick, heal them, preach the gospel, and start churches. And he said, and that's what we do. Well, we said, Finney, um, we'd like you to take over this conference, please. You ministered to us. And he did. And he ministered faith to us. And at the end of that conference, uh, we had more faith. We thought, wow, this this is incredible. Do you know, folks, I think we've complicated things so much. I get fed up with people who talk to me about faith. You know, have you got faith for healing? The latest is, have you got faith to see angels? Well, I I struggle seeing a golf ball at 250 yards these days. (laughs) 
So, I'm, I'm, you know, but Jesus did say this. Jesus did say this. Now, I, uh, did, did he really mean this? Anyone who has faith in me will do the works that I do, and even greater works than these, because I'm going to the Father. And what Jesus seems to be saying to the disciples is this, look, um, I'm, I'm going to leave you, which I don't think was good news for the disciples. I think Peter, I can imagine, if well, I re- re- wrote this one up, I think Peter would be saying, no way you're leaving us. Pal, we've gone through hell with you. We've got an investment here. You know, we're making, no, no cross for you, son. We're, you know, we're... And, and Jesus says, no, no, no. If I don't go, the other one can't come. Well, we don't want another one. We don't want another one. Well, I am limited. We don't think of Jesus as limited. Jesus was limited, limited to one body. He says, but when the other one comes, I'm going to have a multi-membered body that's going to fill the earth. And, and if that body has faith, it will do the works that I've been doing. Now, what are the works that Jesus did? Well, we know about the miracles. We know about the, we, we know about the healings and the casting out of demons. But, you know, he did a lot more than that. It says he went about doing good. And, you know, we can do that. I, I have a friend who's got a church in Selby. And uh, so a lot of unemployment, a lot of businesses pulled out of there. It's having a renaissance at the moment. And I was there preaching, uh, um, I suppose, about eight, eight, nine months ago. And the church had grown. It had doubled in about six months. And I knew Dave was involved in the community with, with lots, of, uh, uh, lots of mercy ministries. And Dave said to me, oh, there's a whole group of people here this morning you've not seen before. I said, how's that? He said, well, it had to do with a wedding. I said, well, tell me the story. He said, well, I got a phone call from a, a young woman who said, I don't, I don't know you particularly, but I, I know of your church and I know you help people. I have a friend called Emma. And e- Emma's due to get married on the 25th of January but she's going to die before then. Uh, she's got cancer, she's dying, but her and her childhood sweetheart want to be married before she dies, but they can't get a church to do it. And, uh, and they can't afford a church anyway, any way you can help. So he visits Emma and, uh, and, and talks to Emma and he, he hears her story and he says, look, when, whenever you want to get married, we'll do it. The church is yours, our building is yours, we'll do it. Have you got a wedding dress? No, well, we'll buy you one. What about bridesmaids? Well, no, can't afford. No, no, it's fine. We'll buy the bridesmaids' dresses. Um, do you want a reception? Well, we can't. No, that's fine. We're going to put on the reception. And what about cakes? You got uh, cakes? How many people? 80 people? We've been have three cakes, 80 people. Uh, well, I can't afford. No, don't worry. We're doing this. Why are you doing that for me? His reply was, because that's what Jesus would do. I love that, don't you? That's who we are. That's what we do. Those are the good works prompted by the Holy Spirit. You see, I, 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 I feel that the Holy Spirit prompts us more than we realise. See, but we're, 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 we're Western. We're, we, we, we operate more in the mind than the Spirit. The Spirit's to rule the mind, not the other way around. And what will happen for some of you tomorrow? You'll, you'll be out your, your workplace or your... You'll be shopping and you'll meet someone. Let's just say, Sue, tomorrow you're going to Sainsbury's. Sainsbury's, do you have a Sainsbury's here? Yeah. Oh, not, not bad. Not so, don't have a Waitrose though, do you? You're not quite at that level. No, do you? All right, you have Waitrose. Well, let's, all right, well, let's say you've got a Waitrose then. I mean, well, I didn't know you really up at... Say you're in Waitrose and you're, you're shopping there and, and then you see one of your neighbours, okay? 
and your neighbour looks very, very sad. And so you, you're, you're stirred, and you say to her, here, Mary, you're looking a bit glum today. Are you okay? Not really. I've just heard my little boy's got cancer. Now, what happens at that moment, folks, is something down here stirs. The Jews call it bowels of mercy. Now, we all know what a bowel movement is. <laughs> but God wants us to have a movement in the spirit. And uh, it says Jesus moved with compassion. Okay? Moved with compassion. So what happens with Sue is she's moved with compassion and she knows for Mary and for, for Mary's son that Jesus is the answer. Now whether it's healing, whether it's salvation, whatever it is, folks, Jesus is the answer. But somehow that's got to come from there and it's got to come out of here. Okay, with a word like, here Mary, how about coming, coming for a cup of tea? I'd love to be able to just share with you a bit. Now, at that point, most people are vulnerable. People are vulnerable at that point because they're in need. But what happens so often with us is it doesn't come out here, it gets up into here. And, and because we are Western, we're intellectual, even if we haven't had much of an education, we think about it and we lose it. And the moment is lost. And, but God wants us to be sensitive. Uh, I was speaking to a friend uh, recently, he lives in France now, um, and, and uh, he reminded me that 25 years ago, um, I phoned him. Um, I hadn't spoken to him for 20 years, we used to play soccer together. By the way, my wife burnt, or threw my boat, boots out when I was 57. Uh, that, my, that was my last season, so I'd love to turn out for you. But I haven't got any boots now. That's it. Mean, very mean. Um, so I miss the soccer. But uh, he reminded me, we used to play soccer together. We, I haven't, we hadn't seen one another for 20 years. But um, 25 years ago, his name came to my mind. His name's Ron Sweetman. We used to play soccer with him. We used to go on holiday with him. We were great friends. Whether he was a Christian or not, they're not sure, certainly churchgoers. I just felt. And so when, 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 I, when I get a prompt like that, what I've learned to do I want to encourage you to do the same. Stop what you're doing. Make a phone call. Do whatever. Make contact. So I phoned Ron. I said, it's Ray Lowe, voice from the past. And uh, he said, well, you won't believe this. Irene, my wife, is dying now, this moment. He said, I haven't prayed for 20 years or more. I've just said, if you are there, God, send me help. And then you phone. And that night led her and Ron to the Lord. She died that night. And then a couple of years later, married him to another lovely Christian lady and they live in France today and we're in touch. But it was just a little prompting. How many of us are prompted by the Holy Spirit? How often someone comes to mind? Maybe it's, and, and, and often you'll find, if you, if you respond, that you'll get the response I got. Oh, yeah, Ray, you're not going to believe this. Yeah. Well, we've got to start believing things. Okay. Um, this, this, is, this is not for super saints. This is for the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit wants to prompt us time and time again. And so we learn, that's living in the Spirit. We learn to respond to the promise. And if you get it wrong, it doesn't do anybody any harm. If, you, if you're prompted to give me money at the end of the meeting, you got it wrong, it won't matter. You will not, you will not hurt me at all. We mustn't complicate things. 
It's very, very simple. The good works that Jesus did, we are to do. The same Holy Spirit that prompted him is the same Holy Spirit that prompts us and equips us in order to do those works. And Jesus didn't talk about faith for healing or faith for seeing angels. He said, anybody who has faith in me. The faith is to do with him. And when we focus on the works rather than on the person, that's when we get into all sorts of trouble and often ends in disillusionment and disappointment. I was speaking at a conference in Mexico and, um, called Fiesta, one we started years ago, brought all the Mexican churches together. And I had a phone call from a guy who had met somebody who knows me in Canada and said he ought to come and hear me preach, which I thought, well, it's good, yeah. A lot more people ought to do that. And uh, so I invited him to come to the conference and I said, why not come and have breakfast with me before the meeting? So he came and had breakfast and this was his story. He was a Methodist minister in a place called Chihuahua. Now, that's where those ugly little dogs come from. And my apologies if you have one of those ugly little dogs, but, but they are ugly little dogs. And, and so he's in Chihuahua. He's, he's, he's a Methodist. How much faith he had, I really don't know. But he keeps hearing a voice telling him to go to a place called Topeak, which is in the Sierra Marjorie, and there's a lot of rainforests and all sorts of things in that area. And, um, and he, he goes to the uh, Methodist authority and he says to them, I'm, I'm hearing this voice telling me that I ought to go to this place. And they said, you need a psychiatrist and we'll get you fixed up with a psychiatrist. Anyway, so eventually he, they say, well, we actually do have an old mission hall in Topeak. So off he goes in his car to Topeak. On the way, he meets with bandits. He gets robbed. He gets beaten up and he comes back and everybody says, there you go. Um, that, that's, that's what that was all about. But this voice won't go away. And so uh, a little while later, he goes to the authorities and says, well, look, psychiatrists haven't done me any good. I keep hearing this voice that tells me I'm to go to this place called Topeak in this, on the Sierra Madre. So they say, well, we're closing down shop here because the mission's not working. And, but if so, if you want the mission hall, it's yours. So off he goes with his family this time and he doesn't get robbed and he opens up shop and some people begin to come. And then one Sunday, uh, a group of people he's not seen before, who look a little primitive, and they come carrying a bed. And on this bed is a guy who's injured and, and they say, you're the man of God, will you pray for him please? And he prays for him. And then, then over the weeks he sees that these people keep coming. And eventually he says, well, where'd you come from? They said, well, we come from the, the mountains and it takes us three days to walk here. And it takes us three days to walk back. So they don't, they've got one day to do their washing and all that sort of thing. Um, but they said, but that, we, we're coming because our friend was healed. So he thinks, well, I'd better go and visit these people. It takes him about seven or eight days to actually walk there. And he discovers there's a whole tribe of Indians. And he preaches the gospel and he sees miracles take place and it opens up for him other tribes. Some of them are cannibalistic. And he was telling me this story that over the last couple of years, he's training people, he's sending them to these other tribes. He says, some of them, he said, we weep together because we never know whether they're actually going to come back, whether their lives will be. I said to him, this is happening when, now? He said, yes. I said, I'm not speaking this morning. You are. A Mexican is going to tell other Mexicans of what God is doing in your country. Their faith was raised. Folks, 
There's works for us to do. There's people going. So I better, I better uh, bring, my, bring my time to an end. Okay, okay. I, I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it. I'm sorry. Listen. Can we just stand and pray? Why do I tell you these stories? They're good stories. Why do I tell you these stories? Because they're happening now. This is not Wesley, Whitfield. This is not Calvin, Luther. This is now in the world in which we live that God wants us to be doing the works that Jesus did and, uh, and a lot more than Jesus did because he is with the Father. We are his body and if we are spirit filled then we have the equipment to do the works. We just need to be responsive. We need to be humble. We don't need a lot of razzmatazz. We just need faith. So I'm going to pray now. I want you to pray with me. We are living in very exciting days. Yes, we are. I could tell you stories of what is happening in Islam. Amazing things are happening in the Islamic nations. Sue and I just come back from the States. We've been there for three months with a group of churches in a place called Montana, uh, in the back end of nowhere. And we saw on the news there is Islamists saying this, we now are going to Europe, which means we can become Christians because we dare not do that before. And I'm thinking, wow, wow. Father, we come to you this morning. Your, your, your heart is for the world. You so loved the world. You so loved all these people, particularly these displaced people, these poor people. And we just thank you for the privilege we have of partnering with you in the gospel, Lord. And uh, we just want to pray this morning. As you increase the faith of those disciples, will you please increase our faith so that the works that we do, Lord, will be increased as well. We do thank you for the guys and girls from MAF that are with us this morning. Thank you for all the, all the stuff we read about what they have done and the way they risk their lives. We, we pray great success over them, please, Lord Jesus. Thank you for 70 years of faithfulness, Lord. And we pray for another 70 years of even more fruitfulness and faithfulness. But we pray for, for this church this morning. This church this morning, Lord, that as they move in the communities, even as some go shopping tomorrow, some go to college, there will be that stirring as they meet people who are, uh, who are needy people, uh, Lord Jesus. I pray there will be faith stirred, compassion, and that it will come out in words of faith and actions of faith that will change. Let me just tell you that I didn't finish that story of Emma. Emma got married... She lived till May and all the people that were in that church were those that had been at that wedding and were coming to the church finding Christ because of the love and mercy that they found in that church because of that wedding they attended. And folks, that's just a, that's, that's just a little story of, of when we do what Jesus would do. We will bear the fruit so we pray, Father. Thank you for all the, all the works that this church are involved with here. I want to pray, Father, much fruit will come. And, and as these Syrians come as refugees to this place, Lord, that many of them will not only will find home and friendship, but will find the Saviour as well. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Great. Thank you.